0: Our scripture passage today comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm 9. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. To the choir master, according to the Muth Levin, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O oh Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he avenges blood. In my, he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made, in the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return from Sheol, all the nations that forgot God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. You may be seated. As we do every week, when we come to God's word, we need his help. So let us begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word that it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, that it cuts us up, and that you put us back together. Lord, we need ears to hear today, and we need your spirit to aliven your word that we might hear. Would you grant that to us today as we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, as we are continuing in our sermon series, in the summer, in the book of Psalms, we come now to Psalm 9, there is a little bit of debate as to whether Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 are supposed to be one and the same in a continuation of thought. There's an argument one way or the other. But as we look at the most uh, historic Hebrew texts, we see them divided in two. But beyond that, as I was looking at Psalm 9 and listening to other people's sermons and reading some of the commentaries, I noticed that people focused really on one of two different things. Uh, some commentators really just focused in on verses one and two, and they really wanted to drive home the idea of worship, worshiping with our whole heart. It's perhaps a, a psalm that we've heard before. It was the psalm we used for our call to worship today. We've used it in the past. So indeed, it is one in which we ought to be stirred as we come to the Lord to give thanks, to remember all of the things he has done to sing praise to his name. But if you read beyond just those opening verses, you also see a lot of judgment, a lot of righteous judgment against the nations. And so oftentimes commentators, other pastors, will focus primarily on God's judgment and talking about righteousness and judgment. What's interesting about those two things is I don't know that I found really anybody that did both of them. And there seems to be something missing in the intrinsic link between the idea of worship and the Lord as king and judge that I think we must always have both in mind. So as we look at this passage today, we will begin by thinking about worship, but we will move on to see what those who worship him with their whole hearts truly do, what they truly confess, what they are uh, compelled to do in light of who God is. So we'll begin together in verse 1. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. These verses here are particularly helpful in something like a call to worship. I don't know if you've read much of people who have passed beyond us, Uh, Puritans, Charles Spurgeon, uh, those these men who their writings have transcended their age. One of the great benefits of reading people like this, uh, one of the resources I use for prayer is The Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers, is that when you read them, they stir in you something that you feel might be lacking in your own life. When you hear the prayers or you hear the preaching or you read the words of somebody who had such a devoted heart to the Lord, it causes us to be stirred to think, what does that person have that I don't? I think the same thing is happening here in Psalm chapter 9 when we read these words of David. They sound really great. They they make a great embroidered pillow in our living room. But something about them also reveals to us a disparity between who we are and who David appears to be. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. Is it not common for us to have divided hearts? Is it not the propensity of all people to divide our lives into different sections? To love God with this much of our heart on this many days of the week, this many minutes in prayer. But then to also love other things, to give thanks for other things, to have our hearts divided in different directions. To sing praise, to be glad and exult in you. We hear these words and we think, perhaps optimistically, that even at our best, this is the heart cry that we hope to have. And yet, as I read these words, I must confess that they are not certainly the way in which I feel my own heart day in and day out. Uh, one pastor, as he expounded upon this passage, talked about there are really three types of worshipers. Those who worship with their whole heart. Number one, we hear, see here, that's David. Uh, number two might be what we would call uh, routine formalists. People who come to go through the motions. We're, we're here, we're doing the right thing, we're checking our box, but we're, we're really kind of disconnected. Our heart is not really involved in any meaningful way it's more of an obligatory action and the third category is half-hearted participant and so as he went on to explain these categories he said you know if we do some self-assessment many of us would would want to be at least honest and humble enough to say well i don't know that i'm a wholehearted worshiper I come to worship. We need to spend time in silent prayer to prepare ourselves. There are things that are distracting me. My phone is buzzing in my pocket. I'm still upset about something that happened earlier this week. I'm thinking about what's happening next. I don't know that I can say I'm a wholehearted worshiper. Now, I don't want to call myself a routine formalist. I'm not merely coming with no sense of, of, of desire, of worship, of thanksgiving not merely religious outwardly. I do have some sort of internal impulse to come to worship. But when we eliminate both of those categories, we're left with a bad category as well. Half-hearted participant. And that is why this psalm is helpful for us, that as we come to worship, as we come to the Lord today, here, the Lord's Day, gathered together in worship, or on any given day of the week, so often we come as half-hearted participants, as those who are beaten down, who are divided, who have mixed loyalties in our hearts. And as we look at the words of David, we are reminded of what wholehearted worship ought to look like. Think about the ways in which our culture pushes back against the idea of being wholeheartedly committed to something like Christianity. Nobody would bat an eye if you were to throw your entire life into some sort of hobby, some sort of sporting event, that you are one of those hockey families from North Dakota that spends every waking hour at the rink, every weekend away. Absolutely acceptable, normal, and perhaps even to be applauded. Nobody bats an eye if we go and we buy an expensive car and we go on a lavish vacation. Of course, you deserve those things. Perhaps we spend an absorbent amount of money going to a sporting event for a disappointing Minnesota sports team. We can show forth the things that we hold most dear to our hearts, the ways in which we have divided hearts, and, and nothing in our culture is going to push back against that. In fact, we might be applauded for doing such things. But what kind of side-eye look might you get if you were to use your vacation time at your work to go on a mission trip? Or were you to speak up to affirm the Bible's view of marriage and sexuality? Or perhaps you are going to live a life below your means in order to help those who are in need. These are the most countercultural things that we see in our day and age, but they spring out of a wholehearted devotion to God, a wholehearted worship. We also see that wholehearted worship is not rooted in our emotional state. Now, it is perhaps possible for us, and there are many traditions in which we come to church, and we can be on a spiritual high. Or maybe the first 30 minutes of the service is to help us get to a spiritual high. So that we have an emotional state in which we feel like our heart is fully connected, fully given over in worship to God. Indeed, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not bad to have highs in our lives where we feel especially near to the Lord but wholehearted worship. David's words here aren't being said in the midst of an emotional high. Think about the story of Paul and Silas thrown into the jail. What do they do? They sing hymns together. I can't imagine they were at an emotional high, being thrown into a dirty, gross prison, Not sure what their fate might be, if anything, they were at an emotional low, and it was in the midst of that trial that their wholehearted devotion to God and worship was manifest. But in the highest of highs and in the lowest of lows, they came to the Lord to recount his wonderful deeds, to sing songs of praise, to be glad and exult in him. Psalm 9 goes on and on to talk about what God has done. Part of heartfelt worship, wholehearted worship, we see, is recounting all of God's wonderful deeds. To be reminded. Oftentimes at the Lord's table, we talk about how one of the most common commandments in all of Scripture is to remember In fact, the Lord's Supper is a fulfillment of the Passover Supper in which they were to remember every year. Remember when the Lord your God led you out of the land of Egypt. Remember how he passed over you when you put the blood on your doorposts. Remember, 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 remember the promises to Abraham. Here, David is giving thanks with his whole heart. He is remembering, recounting, bringing to memory all of the wonderful deeds the Lord has done. It is perhaps a practice that we ought to instill in our own lives. Could you imagine if you were to take out a piece of paper each morning as you begin your day? perhaps with a short word of prayer, and then to begin listing all of the wonderful things the Lord has done for you. How long would your list be? How long would you write before you've exhausted everything the Lord has blessed you with? Moreover, if we don't do that type of activity, how many things would we not attribute to the Lord's hand? But here we see David recounting all that the Lord has done. He is confessing the true faith. He is seeing all that the Lord has done. And he's saying, why should we worship the Lord? And really that's the rest of this psalm. And it bleeds over into this idea of God as being judge. So David is answering for us why we ought to worship the Lord. Why it must be with our whole hearts. David remembers in verse 3 that when his enemies turned back, they stumbled and they perished before your presence. It was the Lord who maintained David's just cause. The Lord is seated on a throne giving righteous judgment. David thinks back about all the times in which people have tried to overthrow his kingdom. All of the times in which his enemies have been confused. And he gives thanks and remembrance to God. He is the one who has caused these things to happen. He is why they stumbled and fell. He is why their plans did not come to fruition. He sits on a throne in judgment, he judges righteously. You have rebuked the nations, verse 5. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end, in everlasting ruin. Their cities you rooted out, and the very memory of them has perished. The finality of the judgment. The decisiveness of the judgment. Forever and ever rooted out even the deepest things, the deepest memories, the glimmer of hope that they might be revived. It's taken away. I don't know what your lawn looks like, mine is terrible. And uh, some days we get out there and we like to pick the weeds we see. And there's nothing more satisfying than actually getting the bottom of one of those thistles, and when you pull it out, and the whole like carrot of a root comes out to the bottom. It's so satisfying about it is you know that that plant is never going to come back. Indeed, it's going to grow maybe another one over there. That is the finality of the Lord's judgment. That even down to the deepest root. The things unseen, his judgment is so sure, so final, that it gets down to the deepest level. Now, as we think about this image of the Lord being a judge, of the Lord executing justice, of defending David, the king, of defeating evil, should not that cause us to turn in worship? Should not that cause us to turn in thanksgiving? Is it no surprise that when David sees all of the things that are happening around him and comes to the realization that it is the Lord who has done these things, that it gives him this vision that he serves the true God, the living God, the one who requires Wholehearted worship. We see the contrast here in verse 7. But the Lord, he sits enthroned forever. He's established his throne of justice. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. All of the failed nations. All of the enemies that have been defeated. All of those who have been judged forever and ever. In contrast to them, the Lord is enthroned forever. He is established. This is the one who deserves worship. He is unlike any other. Remember, every time you see the capital L-O-R-D, that is the covenant name of God. This is the Lord. This is Yahweh. His name, he is seated, enthroned forever. Not only is he enthroned, not only is he powerful, not only is he able to judge perfectly. Verse 9, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know the name, know your name, put their trust in you, o, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. When David would flee from his enemies, this idea of a stronghold as a military position. As a band of soldiers would encamp around a particular place, they would find a strategic location to have a stronghold, to defend a line. Obviously, an elevated place with some surrounding nature to help you in your strategic location. David would flee to such a place, but it wasn't merely that they had this strategic advantage. Because it was the Lord who was the stronghold, the one whom you can run to, the place where you can go, where your enemies can't get you from this side and that side, where you can see what is happening before you. For those who have been oppressed and those who are in times of trouble. And here we come back to this reality that David is calling out. He is giving thanks to the Lord. Most likely not in a time in which he is experiencing great prosperity. He's remembering all of the bad things. All of the times he had to flee to the Lord. But he's also remembering how the Lord acted in the midst of them. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in the time of trouble. That time when I was oppressed, that time when I was in trouble, it was the Lord who protected me on my side and from behind and on the front lines. And I believe that verse number 10 is the center of this psalm, and it reminds us the main message of what David has to proclaim. Those who know your name put their trust in you. Those who know your name put your, their trust in you. For you, O oh Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. What does it mean for those who know your name? Is it that they saw the capital L-O-R-D? That they heard about this nation of Israel? That they know that Jesus existed Now, of course, we know that David is speaking of something far more intimate. Those who know who you are, those who have had it revealed, whose eyes have been opened to your glorious majesty, who see you enthroned forever, You and I, when we know who the Lord is, it ought to cause us to put our trust in Him. This is synonymous with the wholehearted worship. That's what it means. Remember, we began talking about we are half-hearted worshipers, half-hearted participants. Indeed, none of us will truly be fully committed to the Lord in some sort of infallible way until we are made new in the resurrection. But this is the call that despite our failings, despite our doubts, despite our weaknesses, despite our emotional state today, we know who the Lord is. And it is there that we come back and we're reminded, we recount to ourselves the deeds that he has done in order that we might be brought back to trust in him. Indeed, we might forsake the Lord for a moment, for an hour, for a day, for a year, for a season. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. See, the Lord is faithful. Jesus said he would not lose any that the Father has placed into his hand. Nothing is outside of his control. It is here that we are reminded to know the Lord, to remember what he has done, and to put our trust in him. There's kind of a transition here in our psalm as we go to verse 11. What does it look like to trust in the Lord? What does it look like to worship him with our whole hearts? Well, we see the first thing is that it causes a response, causes a response and praise. Sing to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds for he who avenges blood is mindful of them and he does not forget the cry of the afflicted. See, there's a two sided dynamic to the response and praise and worship. First is vertical. We sing to God. We give thanks to his name. Of course, that's what we think of when we think of worship. We come here to meet with God. We sing praises to his name. We pray to him. He speaks to us through his word. But it goes beyond that. Tell among the peoples his deeds. Could you imagine David being delivered from the hand of Saul or Absalom or any of the other people who rose up against him? And after coming back in victory against his enemies, seeing the Lord work mightily, giving thanks to the Lord on the way, and when they come back, they say, what happened? He's like, no, don't worry about it. Or the people of Israel coming through the Red Sea, walking through the wilderness, seeing the Lord speak from the mountain, Not being compelled to tell. Indeed, wholehearted worship must cause us to sing God's praises. But the natural outflow of that is that we would tell the peoples his deeds. It is not that God is merely the king of the church, merely the king over Israel. He is king over all things through all times. His judgment is for all people. He's not merely our personal God. He is the God of all things. Heartfelt worship, knowing, remembering, recounting everything he has done. Overflows in mission. Telling among the people what he has done. How is it possible? Well, it was the Lord. So there's this response in praise. This response in mission but it continues, verse 13, as David then turns to a request. You see, David doesn't just know that the Lord exists. He's not just happy that the Lord decided to descend and help him out in his time of need. But that he realizes that the relationship that has been formed between him and the Lord gives him great privileges. It gives him the ability to make requests, to ask To be heard that the one who is seated on the throne and judges cares about what David thinks. And David asks for grace. He says, be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction for those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. David knows he doesn't deserve to be before the face of this God. As he enters into the courtroom of God's justice, he seeks mercy and grace. He asks the Lord to see. And he confesses that it is the Lord who has delivered him, who has lifted him up from death. In order that the Lord might be praised. Have grace upon me that I might bring you praise. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. these things that are going to happen, David speaks of them in a way as if they have already taken place. Not only has the Lord acted in the past, not only has he done these great things that David has recounted, he is so confident that these things will continue to take place. He speaks of them in a final way, that they have already happened. And when the Lord acts, and the Lord continues to act. Here are the consequences. The wicked shall return to Sheol, the place of the dead. All the nations that forgot God. It's a sobering word. As you think about this warning this prediction, this final judgment. The first thing that comes to my mind is I didn't know any of the other nations knew God. I didn't think they knew the Lord. I thought it was Abraham and his descendants. And yet the Lord has provided a witness all along the way. Was it not Lot, the righteous man who was in Sodom and Gomorrah before it was destroyed? Did not Jonah go to Nineveh? the Assyrian capital, and proclaim to them the judgment to come. Indeed, in our age, the gospel is available to all people in all places. It might seem foreign to some cultures, Christianity. But this word of indictment is strong. It is sobering. That those who do not worship the Lord, who do not have heartfelt worship, who've forgotten who God was, who didn't care enough to show up, who maybe showed up half-heartedly. The wicked, those who have turned against the people of God and against God himself, they've gotten a death sentence. But for the needy, they shall not be forgotten. And the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. It's interesting, as David talks about this, he was not a needy person. Perhaps he was in a pursuit where those who wanted to take his life and take his kingdom were after him. But in general, David was not a needy and poor person. But there's something about Neediness, something about scarcity that causes people to truly see the Lord's deliverance in a different way, to be dependent upon him. As we spoke earlier that so often we trust in our own ability to care for ourselves, to hedge our bets for the future. The story of the widow who gives her offering of everything she has in the temple, two pence, is a reminder of this reality that it is hard for us who aren't needy hard for us who aren't poor to be dependent on who God is to seek his Judgment and justice. We think we can avenge our own case, that we can convince people of their own wrongdoing, that we have a place of power where we can exert our own judgment. Indeed, we might have some of those things today. But even those things have been given to us for a time by the Lord's gracious hand. To provide for us, to remind us that we are not forgotten, that we will not perish, that the Lord knows our need, that the hope we have in him is not in vain. Indeed, we think about this in material ways, but ultimately the psalmist points us to something greater than any sort of material need. Material wealth. Because the contrast here is between the wicked and the righteous, not the rich and the poor. It's those who are poor in spirit, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that Jesus has promised to give them what they need. The psalmist says they are not forgotten, that they will not perish forever. This is the gospel here in a shadowed form of Psalm 8. I'm sorry, Psalm (laughs) 9. That it is us who are needy. Us who find ourselves on the wrong side of the judgment. Who don't give thanks to God with our whole hearts. Who have forgotten the Lord. Who belong to a nation, perhaps that has forgotten the Lord, who has time and time again proven to be unfaithful? This is the hope for us that when we see our need, that when we turn from our wickedness, when we hear that sharp word against the wicked who will go to Sheol who will go to judgment, who will go be put to death. It causes us to turn. When we hear about David worshiping with us whole heart, we think, Lord, that's not me. Help me. It is here that we are reminded of the Lord's grace. He will not turn us away. He will not put us to shame. But those who are needy, who are in hope, who are poor in spirit, Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Verse 19, arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. A call for the Lord to continue to show his justice. Continue to judge Righteously. And when we see these words, it ought to remind us, it ought to cause us to go back and to think what side am I on? We need to be the needy, we need to be the poor, we need to be those who seek mercy and grace. When we think about the idea of wholehearted worship, we know it is an impossible task in our own strength. Jeremiah chapter 17 reminds us the heart is deceitful above all things. Who and desperately wicked? Who can understand it? Even when we think our heart is in the right place, even when we're following our best intentions, our hearts are deceitfully wicked We can't even understand our own emotions, our own desires, our own passions. How do we become wholehearted worshipers? How do we join with the voice of Psalm chapter 9? To give thanks with our whole hearts, to recount his wonderful deeds, to ask for his grace, to continue to see his judgment and justice As those who have received his mercy. It's a verse that we are very familiar with here at Resurrection, one that we use often in our assurance of pardon from Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleannesses. And from all of your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. It is here that we once again see the good news. That if we don't want to be half-hearted participants, mere ritualistic formalists, that if we want to have... Hearts that overflow in worship that recount and remember what God has done. It is he that will provide what we need. It is he that will cleanse us from our rebellion and sin. It is he that will remove those idols from our lives that we so often turn to in our own strength. It is he that will give us the new heart that desires him. It is he that will give us his spirit that will cause us to walk differently. It is he that will remove that sinful heart. This is the hope that we have in Christ. That as he calls us to worship here each week, that as he calls us each day to be reminded, this is the work he is doing in his people He is calling us to wholehearted worship, not merely in our own strength, that we can somehow summon in ourselves the ability to put aside our idols, to put aside our divided hearts, to put aside our routine and our grudges. But instead, we come to him and ask him to do the work, him to give us the desire, him To empower us by his spirit. May he give us this miraculous reality. May God give us the ability to give thanks to the Lord with our whole hearts. May he change our hearts that we would desire to do so. May each day we wake up and he remind us of his wonderful deeds. May his spirit give us gladness to exalt in what he has done. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that the psalm reminds us that you are Almighty, all powerful, that you are the judge of heaven and earth. And yet you have shown grace and mercy to sinners like us. Lord, we have strived to enter into your presence in our own strength, but we cannot do it. We need your spirit to enliven us. We need a new heart a new spirit. We need your cleansing grace and regeneration. We need your sanctifying work in our hearts that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. Help us to trust in you. Help us to know you and to rely upon your provision for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.